Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. It's time to talk about some NFL players again and their jersey numbers, this time the ones that wore the jersey number 92. We have Kyle Smith of the USFL Project coming in to help us out with this. His great insight and a top 10 is coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of Pixie and Dispatch. Welcome again to the Pigpen. We have our football by number series rocking and rolling again, and we are up to jersey number 92. You know, we're almost to the end here. 99 is the goal, and we're almost there. And 92 is a big number with some really big men in it. And we have our friend Kyle Smith from the USFL Project uh, joining us. You may remember Kyle came on and talked about his USFL Project back in the beginning of June. And uh, let's bring him in right now. Kyle Smith, welcome to the Pigpen. Thanks for having me. I love being here. Uh, this is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, I think it is too. We have some of the, the greatest uh, defensive players probably ever to play the game. And uh, this is a, a real thrill to, to talk about them. I, you know, I can't wait. I, I look down this list of, uh, of players that have worn 92 and there's, uh, there's so much history. There's, uh, there's so much culture with, um, not only the NFL, but a couple other leagues that, uh, we'll get into as we, as we duke it out and try to figure out our, uh, our top 10, our top five, our number one, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, I think so. So let's leave that as our tease, but let's go back and let's find out what, what have you got cooking at the USFL project in the last few months? Uh, we, we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes with the USFL project. Um, we're, uh, we're working on our websites. Uh, we're working with a couple of different entities to um, really try to take the USFL project to the next level. Uh, you know, as I told you, our goal is to um, preserve the history of the United States Football League, and that's what we plan to do. We've we've been our team has been working extremely hard behind the scenes to uh, make sure that everything is done right and and that we can we can continue the legacy of the USFL. Well, you guys are doing a great job there, and everybody that's uh, posting on the Facebook page, I think there's uh, something, you know, usually one or two or more posts every single day is bringing up some great memories. I'm, I sit there, see some, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that, you know, so it's bringing up some great memories, and we appreciate that all you guys are doing over there. 
and you know, and we appreciate everybody that gets in the group and and posts and and remembers the USFL and and shares memories, whether it's photos or going to a game or you know, we've got a lot of alumni that are a part of the USFL and they talk about their time in the USFL. So it's um, it, it's it's fantastic to have those people in there and to and to hear the stories and the and to see and share the memories. That's what we're all about. Well, that, that's great. Now, are you at the point where you can you can share the website, or is that not ready to go yet? Not ready to go yet. We're still okay. we're still working on that, but uh, we're we're hoping it won't be too much longer. Okay. Well, when you do, please uh, let me know, and we'll make sure we share that and uh, get that out there here on the podcast and on Pigskin Dispatch website. So, try to help promote that and uh, preserve the USFL history because it's like some great football history in there for sure. I guess that we better get to our task at hand because we got got a big uh, job here. Okay, uh, so we you know got these great uh, jersey number ninety twos that uh, played professional football. And where do you want to begin? Uh, I guess normally what we do is we we announce who the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton has uh, has on their list that says they wore number ninety two. And they got a couple of good ones here: Reggie White and Mike Strahan, uh, Michael Strahan. So you know two two great uh, sack. Uh, Defensive lineman had a lot of sacks, not sacks, lineman, uh, defensive lineman had a lot of sacks. So I don't know if you want to start talking about them or if you want to go in a different direction. Anyways, fine, but we want to make sure we come back and talk to, about them because they're significant. You know, for me, one of the things we do at the USFL project is we try to recognize everybody. So I think you and I and and most of the listening public know that the the two top number 92s are going to be Reggie White and Michael Strahan. It just depends on where we put them in the top two. So if it's all the same to you, I think I'd like to talk about um, some of the guys that maybe didn't make our top 10 list. Absolutely. Let's do it. You lead so the my, my first one, and, and this is, this is more from uh, my childhood adolescence, but, I have to give a big shout out to Burt Grossman with the San Diego Chargers. Uh, 43 and a half sacks, 274 solo tackles and three forced fumbles. And he had a very shortened career. He had a neck injury that ended his career in 1996. I can tell you right now, Burt Grossman was heading for wonderful things with the, with the Chargers. And that neck injury just really derailed, well, finished his career. And I, I think that Burt Grossman, he, he may not make our top 10, but he should darn sure make the top 20 and maybe even the top 15. He, he was headed for great things in the short time that he was in the NFL. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He he was. I can remember that name. I remember him playing. And yeah, that's that's a shame that uh, you have to have a major injury like that, and it sort of knocks you out of your your dreams and uh, you know some of your greatness that you could have achieved. But yeah, I mean, definitely substantial player there. Uh, who else do you have you would like to talk about? We we may get canceled by ESPN, but I've got to mention Booger McFarland with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, again. Not not a huge amount of numbers, but he was uh, he he was a, um, a a big part of that defensive line. Twenty two and a half sacks. He had one hundred and seventy four solo tackles, four forced fumbles. But 
He's a two-time Super Bowl champ. I mean, like him or not like him on TV, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the best players that wore the number 92. And I think as a two-time Super Bowl champ and as an anchor on that defensive line, I think Booger McFarlane has earned the right uh, to at least get honorable mention on this list. I, I totally agree. He was a very significant player. And, uh, you know, I, I – enjoyed his play. And, you know, I really enjoyed him, his commentary when he was doing the games and now they sort of have him in studio. I, I don't know that that's, uh, you know, he's still good doing that too, but I really think he brought a different uh, uh, vision to the game. One that you didn't always hear. And, you know, I know some people didn't appreciate what, what he did, but I, I thought he was fantastic when he did the games myself, but uh and, you know, I think Booger is one of those um, kind of polarizing figures. For, for me as a kid, when I would listen to games, for me, it was Dan Deerdorf. A lot of people really liked Dan Deerdorf. Me personally, I didn't care for the commentary. I, 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 didn't, I didn't really get into him. Bringing it more modern day, there's a lot of people that really like Chris Collinsworth and, and Joe Buck. And on the other side, there's just as many people that just don't like that type of commentary. And I think Booger McFarlane, he falls in in with those uh, types of people. Types yeah, I, of an I, I totally agree. You know, everybody has a different style and that's what makes, uh, you know, sports journalism and sports uh, broadcasting so interesting, you know, and you, sometimes you hit the home runs with like the John Maddens and the, the Gruden's uh, of the world. And, you know, sometimes you have just a different style that uh, only, you know, a select group of people like, and another one probably doesn't care for, like you say. So, but uh, yeah, I, I think he, he is polarizing, but I, I thought he was pretty good. And uh, a great player, and I'm glad glad you mentioned him. Yep. Now, the the next guy I'm going to mention, I I gave him a little bit of a boost because uh, he has um, he has a a strange piece of NFL history. I'm going to put Don Terry Poe on the honorable mention list. Now, his his defensive tackle stats are not that great. He had 20 and a half sacks. 205 solo tackles. He had two forced fumbles. He was a two-time Pro Bowler. But the stat that caught me as I was doing my research is he is known as the largest player to either rush or pass for a touchdown while also having a 100% pass completion percentage, passing touchdown and rushing touchdown. (laughs) <laughs> that right there, mm-hmm. that that little nugget will at least get you honorable mention on this list. Right, because even uh, Refrigerator Perry can't say that, can he? <laughs> he cannot. <laughs> he he was a big man and a uh, you know great run stuffer and really clogged up the middle and you know freed up his backers to to roam around and you know just ate up a lot of blocks. So a great great player and uh, you know his. It's a shame that his career was sort of shortened too and I, i'm not sure if it was health reasons or or other but you know it's a shame that he's he couldn't continue his his journey well and he bounced around too he was with the chiefs the falcons the panthers the cowboys i mean he he did he did bounce around as a defensive tackle so um he just uh he couldn't he couldn't find his spot and that's why he's on our honorable mention list yeah, that, that's for sure. You know, probably the, the schemes of the era that he played in, if he had played maybe 
10, 15 years earlier when, you know, the three, four was pretty dominant. He could probably been a great nose tackle and stayed on the field a lot more when teams were running the ball a little bit more than they, they do now. But now with all these, uh, you know, crazy uh, offensive schemes, you have to go into nickel and dime a, a lot sooner. And the nose tackle, unfortunately, is just like the, the fullback on offense is sort of on the sidelines <laughs> a lot more. So probably would have been a lot better play if he played in the nineties, you know? Right. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. the, so Go the ahead. next guy I have on my list is, is one of a couple of Steelers that you're going to hear about, which we've already heard about, you know, uh, a couple, but um, Jason Gilden played for the Steelers, Jaguars, 80, uh, career sacks, 389 solo tackles, 15 forced fumbles, and he was a three-time Pro Bowler and an All-Pro in 2001. Jason Gilden, uh, again, great career, um, put up some put up some fantastic career numbers. Just didn't quite crack the top ten on my list. Okay, see, so I, I had him down near the bottom of my top ten list, and this is why because. Uh, prior to another player we're going to talk about later, he was the leading Steelers uh, in, in sacks for career for, for many seasons. Uh, and yes, so, he was. And, uh, and he was very significant. And on a team that he played with some great linebackers, you know, in the era he played um, back, you know, predominantly in the uh, 1990s, uh, they had a, a, another great defense back then. He, um, he, he, I think he was one of the shining stars on that defense and didn't always get the credit that he deserved, but he was definitely a great edge rusher, an outside linebacker. And it's funny you mentioned credit that he deserved because I have a guy in my top 10 that made my top 10 because I don't think that he received the credit he deserves because there was another player on the other side that you're going to cover in your next two episodes that was the one that was able to benefit because of that. But we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. All right. Uh, who do you have next after Gilden? You know, I've got a guy that had a 16-year career, bounced around with a few teams, um, as a matter of fact, more than Don Terry Poe did. But I've got Ted Washington. Ted Washington made my honorable mention list 34 and a half sacks, which is not as many as Gilden but he had 609 solo tackles. He had eight forced fumbles, won a Super Bowl, and was a four-time Pro Bowl cha- Pro Bowler. So I I put Ted Washington, and Ted Washington actually on, on my list of, of top 10, he actually made it to 12. So that's how much I thought of Ted Washington and, and the career and the longevity that he put forth. Okay, this is going to be interesting because Ted uh, Washington's another one I I had in my top ten. So this will be interesting. When we go to go to compare these things, but uh, yeah, tremendous player. Uh, you know, for for years and years was just the uh, the heart and soul of the middle of that that uh, defense for the Patriots, and uh, what a great defense that was. And uh, no, he he did have to bounce around a little bit. I'm sorry, you know, he did not play for the Patriots. I'm sorry. Uh, Buffalo, Buffalo is who he was playing for. And uh, you know, just a heart and soul at that nose tackle position of that, that great defensive line they had in the 90s. And uh, yeah, tremendous player. Absolutely. So here's where it gets fun. I am now at the number 11 player on my top 10 list. And I know that doesn't make sense, 
but I had to number them to make sure that uh, I was doing everyone justice. But this will probably be our controversial one. Okay. I've got Cliff Averill from the Lions and the Seahawks. 74 sacks, 207 solo tackles, 30 forced fumbles, won a Super Bowl, was a pro bowler. But here's the problem I had. He wore 92 with the Lions. And I'm sorry, Lions fans, but you guys were mediocre at best. When he went to Seattle, he changed numbers to 56. And that's where Cliff Averill really started to shine. And so because of that number change, I bumped Cliff Averill out of my top 10. He's actually my number 11. <laughs> okay. And I, I didn't have him in my top 10 either uh, for, for many of the same reasons, but you know, very, very significant player, all the same for his total career. We're in both Jersey numbers on both teams, but um, you know, like you say, he, uh, if you had 56 in Seattle to go along with his Detroit uh, statistics, he's probably in our top 10, like you said, but uh, only uh, f- five seasons wearing the number 92. Right. And, uh, so, okay. Well now, now uh, we're getting in your nitty gritty here. So that's your, your 11th guy. Who, who do you have at number 10? At number 10, I gave this guy the bump over Cliff Averill, not only for the number, but he's also in a team Hall of Fame. I gave it to Haloti Nada. He played for the Ravens, Lions, Eagles, uh, amassed 32 and a half sacks, 329 solo tackles, seven forced fumbles. He was a Super Bowl champ. He was a five-time Pro Bowler, and he's in the Ravens Ring of Honor. So I gave number 10 to Haloti Nada. Yeah, I actually had Haloti a little bit higher now. I had him at number five on my list uh, because I think he was, of course, I, I had to watch him play against my team uh, twice a year, and he was just, uh, you know, held a run against, that's for sure. You know, the, the, <laughs> a, the a gap was gone when Haloti Nada was in there. And, uh, you know, had to, the only success you could have was going outside running because he was just that significant. So I, I agree with you on being in the top 10. Yeah, and, and, you know, with Haloti Nada, they ran away from him. Like you said, the A-gap was gone. You had to run to the outside. So he was he was giving his defensive teammates opportunities to create plays because they were not going to run at him. There, there's just no chance you don't want to. Yeah, I, I think he really boosted like Ray Lewis's uh, statistics the years they played together because he just ate up blocks. You know, it took two guys to block him. So, you know, a lot of times those big linemen couldn't get that back to that second level and take out the backer. So Ray Lewis was free to roam a little bit and, uh, you know, got, got his share of tackles. That's for sure. And it, it's a big deal for a guy like Ray Lewis when you know Hello Nada is right in front of you then you know that they're not going to run the A-gap. And if they do, he's got them. So like you said, it gave Ray Lewis a lot of freedom to move around in that linebacker position. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Okay, so so where do you go with number nine? At number nine, I'm going with Michael Dean Perry. With the okay. Browns, uh, the Broncos, the Chiefs. He totaled 61 sacks, 534 solo tackles had 13 forced fumbles. Really important to me, just like I mentioned with Haloti Nada before, he's a member of the Cleveland Browns legends. 
And that was a that that was a really big thing with me because Cleveland has a very storied history in football. Uh, six-time Pro Bowler, he was the UPI AFC Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, number nine's Michael Dean Perry, and and I had him at number ten. So we're we're both in agreement on that. Yeah, I, another one I had to watch uh, two two times a year, just beating up on my my Steelers offensive players. But he's a real good player too. Most yes, definitely. he is. Most definitely. Okay. Uh, where do you go with your number eight? At number eight, I've got Bertrand Berry with the Colts, Broncos, Cardinals. 65 sacks, 184 solo tackles, 14 forced fumbles. He also played for the Edmonton Eskimos, which I thought was a, you know, that's a great transition playing from the CFL into the NFL. He was a pro bowler and an all-pro and a sacks leader in 2004. So that gave him the bump into the top 10. In 2004, he went to the Pro Bowl, he was an all-pro, and he led the league in sacks. Wow, that, that is significant. Yeah, I did not have him uh, making my top 10, but uh, yeah, you maybe you might convince me here. It's uh, That's pretty good uh, statistics you're talking about. So I mean it it is one season it is we're that's really focusing on the 2004 season but I took into consideration that he did play in the Canadian Football League with the Edmonton Eskimos and worked his way into the NFL because you know we we've seen those success stories and they're great but for someone to put up those kind of numbers in the NFL coming from the CFL I I put a lot of basis on that when I made my decision I I, I you know you're very convincing. It's very compelling in what you're saying here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm think you got me thinking here about him, and maybe I didn't give him enough credit. You know, like you said, the CFL career really gives him a little a boost there. So, hmm, good, good job, good job on that one. All right, who, who do you I'd have? Like to, uh, and after that pick, I would really like to hear from your Edmonton fans about the uh, name change with the uh, Edmonton football team. I will tell you personally that I am not a fan of it. I've always thought of them as the Edmonton Eskimos. I used to go home and get get home from school about four o'clock, and I would turn on ESPN when they had the old Canadian Football League games on. I remember the Edmonton Eskimos. I, me personally, I'm just not a fan of the Edmonton Elks. Now, I I was about the same. I, I didn't really care for it. And uh, we have uh, another podcast. We have a Canadian Football League pa- podcast on the uh, Sports History Network called uh, From the 55-Yard Line. And uh, the gentleman on there, Scott and Greg, they had uh, an individual, I forget who it was, from the from Edmonton area. I can't remember if he was associated with the team or just like a super fan. And the Elk uh, moniker, you know, they, they had to – to change, you know, from, from pressure, from what's going on in the world these days. Um, but the elk, uh, moniker was actually carried from the past. The, the team had used that once upon a time and I forget exactly when, but early on in, uh, maybe the fifties or sixties and, uh, you know, early in the franchise and they just, uh, rejuvenated it and it sort of fit into their, you know, having the, the, the two E's, you know, the, the name of Edmonton and then, you know, the, the nickname starting with an E and, you know, fit a, a bunch of different molds for them. So it was sort of a natural progression, a lot more than I realized when I first heard the name change. Now I will say this, I'm a very big fan of the Edmonton Elks uh, helmet. 
I think that's a very good look. I really like that look. I'm glad they kept the color scheme somewhat intact, but I just, you know, for me, they're, they're always going to be the Edmonton Eskimos. And that, and that's just as a, as a, a Texan talking, you know, I, I'm sure people have different feelings, but they're always going to be the Edmonton Eskimos to me, just like they're always going to be the Montreal Expos. I mean, we can, we can go on and on. We could have a whole other podcast about all these name changes. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, I'm sure there's, a, there's a lot of people that have that same sentiment, but probably over time, you know, as, as you and I, we get older and the younger generations come up and that's all they know them by. Uh, it'd be just like us talking about, you know, uh, you know, the, the Steelers used to be the Pirates or the Kansas State Chiefs used to be the Dallas Texans, you know, things like that, which we, you, you and I probably don't think about that much anymore, except uh, that we get into football history a lot more than most do. But um, right. yeah, very, very good, though. Very good pick on that. OK, and who, who do you have at your seventh pick? At my seventh pick, I've got the big cat, Sean Ellis. Played for the Jets and Patriots, racked up 73 and a half sacks, 411 solo tackles, 13 forced fumbles. He was a two-time Pro Bowler. And the reason that I gave uh, Sean Ellis the spot that I gave him was quite honestly, and I'm sorry, Jets fans, but he was stuck with the Jets for 10 seasons. And that you know, they they had some they had some mid-level years in that time frame. But Sean Ellis was doing everything he could to keep that defense intact. So I gave Sean Ellis the bump for being with the Jets for 10 seasons and having the, the statistics and the overall career that he had. Yeah, I I thought he was significant, too, to be in the top 10. I had him at my number eight. So we're, we're real close on that one. Uh, yeah, great player for all the reasons. He, he, he really was. He was, a, he was a huge presence on the field. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of times the Jets were down by – 10 plus points and Sean Ellis was still out there anchoring that defense. So I gave him, I gave him the bump to seven. Yeah. And uh, you know, the two pro bowls, that, that's definitely a significant part, especially when you're playing on a team that's, that's not doing so well, you know, it's, it's real easy to name some guys to the pro bowl that are, you know, their teams are, you know, one or two losses or winning their division, you know, in the playoffs, but Sean Ellis didn't have that, the benefit of that very often, if at all. And, but he, you know, Great, great player, 73 and a half sacks. That's nothing to sneeze at in his career. That's for sure. Absolutely. All right. Uh, where did you go with number six? So number six, this uh, this may be a little bit of a hometown pick because I struggled with four, five, and six. But at number six, and as we referenced earlier in the conversation, this is a guy that I think was a um, an anchor on a defensive line where his other defensive end benefited the most by having him on the team. I gave number six to Tony Tolbert with the Cowboys. Um, oh, okay. 59 sacks, 531 solo tackles, seven forced fumbles. He was a three-time Super Bowl champion. He was on the NFL all-rookie team in 1989. And he returned his only career interception 54 yards for a touchdown. And this is a guy in Tony Tolbert that the NFL considered a tweener. And as, as you and I have talked before, that, that term is very sensitive to me because Sam Mills was considered a tweener. He was considered too small at his position 
Tony Tolbert was considered to be too small for a defensive end, uh, too big for a linebacker. They, they labeled him, and all Tony Tolbert did was make Charles Haley's life a lot easier on the other side of the defense because Tony Tolbert was getting the same amount of pressure, but Charles Haley, the, uh, the Ring of Honor member, was getting the benefit of it because they were having to focus so much on Tony Tolbert. So I gave my number six position to Tony Tolbert for his body of work in the NFL and, and how he allowed the Cowboys or helped the Cowboys to win three Super Bowl championships. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's a very interesting. That's a, you know, I, I didn't realize his significance that, you know, I, I definitely remember the name. I remember his, his great play with the Cowboys, but I didn't realize, you know, the significance of that. And I'm glad you, you pointed that stuff out to us. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we're, I'm a little bit further away from, from Dallas uh, and don't get to see them play every week, but um, uh, definitely a, a significant player. And I appreciate you, you bringing him up. Okay. So where did you go with your number five pick? So again, I mentioned that four through six are a little bit difficult. I think, you know, I think on any top 10 list, one, two, and three are pretty cut and dry. Now, again, we may get to one, two, and three, and we may figure out that it's not. But number five, I gave it to a guy nicknamed Cool, and that's Elvis Doomerville with the Broncos, Ravens, and 49ers. Hundred and five and a half career sacks, 263 solo tackles, 23 forced fumbles. He was a five-time Pro Bowler. He was the NFL sacks leader in 2009. And you just did not run toward Elvis Dumerville. You you didn't. Anybody that watched football in that era, you tried to stay away from him because he was going to disrupt plays. So I gave it to uh, – I gave number five to cool Elvis Dumerville. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I had him on my uh, top ten also. I had him – uh, sort of, sort of in that same boat. Only I had him uh, at number. Oh boy, now I just lost where he was here. Um, I think I had him at number uh, number seven. I had him at on my list. Okay. So, so yeah, definitely that middle of the pack. Like you said, it's it was a pretty interchangeable here. You get uh, usually four through like eight uh, on my list anyway, and it sounds like yours is the same. So, yeah, I definitely agree. He. Uh, and I was kind of disappointed. I loved watching him play with Denver and I was sort of a weird situation. Cause wasn't it um, that they were going to resign him. And then the clock was ticking on the free agents when free agency would start. And supposedly the Broncos said they called him like a couple minutes before to honor his contract that they had negotiated. And he got a call from the Patriots or from the, uh, the Ravens at the same time and ended up signing with them and uh, was lost to the Denver Broncos. So it's kind of a, an odd situation. It, it was kind of a situation like what they talked about in the movie draft day, where if you, if you don't make your pick in a certain amount of time, then it falls to the next team and the Ravens were right there and it, it was right place, right time for the Ravens. They had a, had a great career in Baltimore. Yeah. Much to the dismay of the rest of the AFC North, uh, Dumervoe came in and, and played extremely well across from uh, Mr. T Suggs. So yeah, great, great uh, player. Really enjoyed him uh, watching him play. He was just had that low center of gravity and, you know, making sometimes making the turns when they do slow motion, how he would just go under the, the block of a, the uh, tackles and just make that cut back you know, to the quarterback. It's just unbelievable, the athleticism to do that. 
it's almost like watching the matrix, you know, how they can, <laughs> they're bending to dodge bullets. So he's dodging to, to miss blocks and get to the QB. Very good player. Okay. So where did you go with your, your fourth pick? So my fourth pick is a three-time Super Bowl champion. He was a seven-time All-Pro. He was on the 2000s All-Decade team. I went with Richard Seymour from the New England Patriots and later the Raiders. 57 and a half sacks, which isn't necessarily as impressive as the couple of people below him, but 326 solo tackles, four forced fumbles. He's on the Patriots 50th anniversary team. He was on the Patriots all 2000 team. He's in the Patriots Hall of Fame. I mean, I'm sorry, but with the with the Patriots history the way it is and and the Patriots deeming him to to be worthy of of those honors uh, that love or hate the Patriots they they have been the standard for the past 20 years that we've been watching the NFL so my my vote for number four goes to Richard Seymour yeah I had him high on my list also I had him at number six. Um, and you know, what a shock to, to him and the Patriots when they dealt him off to Oakland. I, I'm not sure that he was real crazy about the whole thing when he left uh, the New England, but uh, you know, that the wise old coach up there that uh, covers his player personnel very well, he knew what he was doing. And Oakland got a good player for, for the few seasons that he played with them, too. You know, Richard Seymour, definitely a, a stalwart on a defensive line of any team he played for. And he had a lot of gas in the tank when he when he was dealt from the Patriots. And uh, you could and of course, when you get dealt, you've got that little bit of extra fire that you want to show the league that, hey, they they traded me, but I can still play. And he definitely proved that when he left. Yeah, it definitely puts a chip on your shoulder. So and he, he played with that and you could tell he was a very passionate player and we appreciate his fine play. So. Yeah, I'm definitely on the list for for our top 10. Okay, so where did you go with number three? Number three, I went with a 43-year-old guy that I think could still play in the NFL right now. And if you follow him on social media, you can definitely see it. I went with James Harrison from the Pittsburgh Steelers. 84 and a half sacks, 585 solo tackles, um, 34 forced fumbles. He was a five-time Pro Bowler, two-time Super Bowl champion. He's the Steelers' all-time sack leader, and he was the Defensive Player of the Year in 2008. And I don't know how in the world that he only won that award one time. He was a man among boys. Yeah, boy, I, he has got to be one of the strongest players that have ever played in the NFL. Uh, like you say, you watch some of his social media posts on his weightlifting routine. It's just, it's inhuman what he does. Um, you know, he was referred to in Pittsburgh finally as Debo was his nickname. And I'm not sure where the name comes from, but you, you knew when, when Debo was on a field, he was just a phenom and like Doomerville, he just had those, those weird bends he could do with his body at a high speed to, to speed when he ran a speed rush to, to go around the, the tackles uh he could bull rush uh he had great hand fighting uh low center of gravity and he was tough against the run 
And yeah, James Harrison. And plus, he has my favorite play of all time in Super Bowl history with that great uh, 99-yard interception return that really turned the game for the Steelers against the Cardinals in 2008. So a very good pick. I had him as my number three also. And and that play, it's it's funny you mentioned that play. I was thinking about it when I was making this list. That is a defensive lineman that intercepted a pass and went 99 yards the other way. It could not be stopped. There are not very many defensive linemen that could run 99 yards, much less not get caught by another offensive player. Yeah, that. And he had no time on the clock when he finally scored. So if he gets knocked out of bounds at any point in the time, they don't even have time to kick a field goal or anything. You know, it was, it was great because he prevented, you know, definitely the Cardinals looked like they were about to score before the end of the half. Uh, but just to, to go that distance, and I'm sure he went through a couple tanks of oxygen at the that half on that. <laughs> but what a tremendous play and effort to, to get to that goal line because it was the only option for the, the Steelers to get any points out of that play. By his efforts, so. the Steelers may need to give the Steelers may need to give him a call because they're they're dealing with some injuries right now that on their defense that uh, they they might want to go. Hey, James, you uh, <laughs> you got a couple more games in you? They they might. They've done it before. That's true. I know they did just sign a Taco Carlton, the former Cowboy, just uh, the other day. So, but they put him on a practice squad. So that might be their reserve plan for now. But you never know. They probably have James on speed dial. If he if he'll come back, I, I would. If, if if he'll come back, I'm not sure if they were on the best of terms uh, when he, they let him go in the middle of the season when he asked to be let go, and he went to the Patriots in the middle of that last season. He was with them and got another Super Bowl ring out of it. So, uh, okay, so I guess we're getting down to the big hitters here that we mentioned earlier. And uh, who would you like to put at your number two? I don't think it's any surprise for anybody that knows me or knows what I'm about. At number two, I put Michael Strahan with the New York Giants. 141 and a half sacks, 666 solo tackles, 24 forced fumbles. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's a Super Bowl champion. He was the Defensive Player of the Year in 2001. Seven-time Pro Bowler, two-time sack leader. He's on the all-decade team for the 2000s. He's in the Giants' ring of honor. His number 92 is retired. All respect in the world to Michael Strahan. He's had, a, he's had a great career outside of football. But my number two on my list is Michael Strahan. Yeah, most definitely. I think I heard somebody comment uh, probably about a year ago that he might be the only person on television right now that has more shows than Steve Harvey, because it seems like he's, <laughs> he's in quite a few. And it's probably probably true, uh, but uh, very, very entertaining, very. I mean, I've never met the man, but uh, his personality on television is just perfect. And uh, you know, I, I don't know of anybody that dislikes him on television, but I can think of a few quarterbacks that probably feared him uh, when he played in, in the league. And they were probably glad that when he retired after his 15 years with the Giants was through because, man, what a, a wrecking crew he was. He was, uh, like you said, you had the statistics. Wow, what a great player. I'm sure when the, um, when the Manning uh, broadcast happens on Monday Night Football and they have the Giants on the next time, I can't imagine that they won't have Michael Strahan on that broadcast to talk about 
how he used to torment Peyton Manning whenever he got a chance because Eli never had to face him. So right. Eli should sit back and go, I love the guy. I had I have no problem with Michael Strahan. He never he never hurt me, but he hurt my brother quite a bit. Let's talk about that. That'll be Eli's like shining light right there. So I again I Strahan, one of the best players uh to ever wear ninety two, but he is he is second on my list. Yeah, he's second on mine as well. And I guess maybe before we move on here, what what do you think so far about that? Uh, that it's on ESPN two, I believe, where they have you know Peyton and Eli talking, doing the sort of the their analysis of the game while the game's being played. I, I like it. I think it's kind of entertaining. Honestly, I don't think I'd watch anything else. Um, the way that the Manning brothers work with each other. And I actually, when I, when I first turned it on, I wasn't sure how it was going to work because Peyton had gone on to do commercials and television and all of these different things. And I honestly thought that Eli would kind of ride off into the sunset, wouldn't do much, but now he's, he's getting into commercials. He's getting more comfortable in front of an audience, in front of um, cameras. And I thought the broadcast was fantastic. Um, it, it, it had, it, it had just the right amount of information, but it also had just the right amount of flaws that makes it so fun to watch. I mean, watching, watching Peyton get up and Eli try to call plays to him while Peyton has a Ravens helmet on. I, I thought that broadcast was spectacular. I think they've done a great job with it, uh, both of the weeks that they've done it. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I I loved it uh, the week that they had uh, Ray Lewis come on. I, I think it was just Pat, the second week of the season had Ray Lewis come on, and he, you know, Peyton is uh, such a, a a ball buster. Basically, he's uh, having fun with everybody, and uh, when he put up the statistics of the of Eli uh, in that one game against the Ravens when he was a rookie. It was just his quarterback rating of 0.0. I thought that was hilarious. And, you know, much to Eli's dismay, he was a little bit embarrassed, but he knew his brother was probably going to pick on him a little bit. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to be great. I, you know, I'm not looking at the schedule right now, but if the Giants are lucky enough to be on Monday Night Football at some point this season, I would love for Eli to throw that back in Peyton's face uh, with, you know, a guy like Michael Strahan that we just talked about or or another defensive player that, especially Strahan, because Eli never had to face Strahan other than practice. So Eli can say he's perfect against Michael Strahan where Peyton can't say that. Right, yeah. Every time Eli faced him, he had the red shirt on. He wasn't allowed to get hit, so that's uh, that's a good point. That, that that should be very entertaining. And I, the Giants got to be on Monday Night Football, you figure, because that's a that's a big audience, and uh, you know ESPN is going to want to have that audience some point in the, in the season. That's for sure. Okay, um, go ahead. Uh, you would you would definitely think that the um, that the Giants would uh, make an appearance because you're right. That's that's too big of an audience to to ignore, um, even you know even how the Giants' season might turn out. Um, they're going to have to have the Giants on there at some point, you would think. Yeah, I think you know, no matter what the record is, that's definitely 
an audience that they're going to want in there. That's one of the, the top drawing teams and biggest markets that there is. So, and they're all across the country too. So yeah, they'll definitely want them on there. But I think it's probably time to talk about sort of the star of this number. And I know you've been anxious to talk about him. And this is probably the, the reason why you picked this number. And uh, so I'm anxious to hear uh, about uh, Mr. Uh, Reggie White. You can't go wrong having Reggie White, the Minister of Defense, as the number one on any type of list, especially a list of the greatest players that wore number 92. Played for the Memphis Showboats in the USFL in 1985, went on to the Eagles, Packers, Panthers, um, 198 NFL sacks, 1,048 solo tackles. 33 forced fumbles. He won a Super Bowl in Green Bay. He was a two-time NFL Defensive Player of the Year. He was a 13-time All-Pro. Led the league and led the NFL in sacks two times. He was on the 80s and 90s All-Decade Team, the 75th and 100th Anniversary All-Time Team. He's in the Eagles and Packers Hall of Fame. He was a first-teamer, all-USFL in 1985. I mean, Reggie White was it. Reggie White will go down as the best player to ever wear the number 92, past or present. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Now, I don't think they don't have his USFL sacks on a Pro Football Reference at 198. So do you know how many sacks he had with the Showboats? In the 1985 season with the Memphis Showboats, Reggie White had 11 and a half sacks. And just as a comparison, I had one very high-ranking official in the USFL tell me that Reggie White wasn't the best defensive lineman on that Memphis Showboats team. He was still green. He was still learning and had 11 and a half sacks. In wow. contrast... John Corker, known as the sack man, had five and a half sacks that year. He was second on the team. So he, had, John Corker had five and a half sacks for the showboats, and Reggie White doubled him. Yeah, probably Corker was probably getting the double teams because he was a little bit more established at that point. And the youngster, White, uh, you know, probably got the benefit of that too. Uh, you know, trying, you can't uh, block uh, Reggie White with one guy. I don't care how young he is. He was just that, that strong. I mean, I can remember, you know, just some of his moves where he would just literally one arm backhand, you know, big offensive lineman and swat him like flies and get in the backfield. That, that's a strong guy. That's for sure. And, you know, and he was such a, a great person on and off the field. I mean, Reggie White was one of those guys that, that didn't trash talk on the field. He went out, he did his job, and he went back and, and prepared for the next game. And that's, that's what Reggie White was. He was about family, he was about football, and he was about faith. And, you know, there, there will never, never, ever be another man like Reggie White. No, I, I agree. Uh, man or football player. Uh, yeah, we lost him much too young, 43 years old, just, you know, just a, a week after his 43rd birthday, uh, he passed. And, uh, you know, what a, 
what a shock that was uh, to the the world and the, the football community because uh, you know great man great player and uh, uh, I'm glad that we could talk about him and, and put him up at the top of our list because he definitely deserves it that's for sure he does and you know Reggie was he was so instrumental you know when you talk about the Mount Rushmore of of the USFL a lot of guys want to point to Jim Kelly and Steve Young and Doug Flutie and Herschel Walker, Kelvin Bryant. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about the names that played in the USFL. But Reggie White was a diamond for the USFL. And, and we were, we were so lucky to have him for such a brief period of time in our great league. Yeah, that, that was definitely a, a big signing, a lot, a lot bigger than, uh, you know, people knew at the time because, you know, I, I know he was talked about. He was a great player at Tennessee, but I don't know that anybody could foresee what he was going to do in professional football, both in the USFL and the NFL. He just, uh, you know, wrecked offensive lines and destroyed game plans. And you better get, get the ball out of your hands quick because he's coming in and he's coming in hard and, uh, you know, Great, great player, great man, and uh, you know every every accolade you could talk about him, he definitely deserves. That's for sure. And you know the for for the USFL, the great thing was uh, that the Memphis Showboats had two exceptional leaders, and that was um, a, a man who just passed away recently, who was the owner of the Memphis Showboats, Billy Donovan. And they had Steve Earhart as their general manager in 1985. And they saw the talent and how special Reggie White was. And they went after him, were lucky enough to bring him into the USFL. And we're, we're so proud to have him as, uh, as a part of our history. I mean, Reggie, Reggie White, there is absolutely no other. Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of a, a fun fact about him. Just to tell you how good he is. His worst career or worst season in the NFL was five and a half sacks. And that came when he was at 39 years of age, came out of retirement after being out for a year with the Carolina Panthers, a team he never played for, and put up five and a half sacks at 39 years old as a defensive lineman. I mean, that's that's a statement right there that tells you, what a what a good player he was, even throughout his whole career, uh, just tremendous. And I can tell you, when I when I first started playing football, I was in fifth grade, and I can tell you right now, I didn't have five and a half sacks from fifth grade to eighth grade playing defensive end or defensive tackle. And he he goes in and and does that at, at the NFL level. That's that's definitely an accomplishment and something to be very very proud of. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure his, his uh, family and friends are, and I'm sure you know he was he was not like you said he was not a he was a humble man when when you heard him in interviews and everything. Uh, he was a, he was a man of the, of the cloth, and you know he he led by example and led the life the uh, way that people should be leading it. And uh, what what a great role model for for the youngsters and adults alike because he was just a man's man and. Uh, did a very good job at everything he did in life. And like I said, lost him much too young at 43 years of age. And, uh, you know, the world was a much sadder place then. 
But boy, the, just thinking about the memories of this guy playing makes it a little bit brighter and uh, takes some of those tears away. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad glad we have him on that list, and uh, he really caps off a, a great evening of talking about these great '92s. And I, I really appreciate you coming on here and uh, helping us out here. Uh, did you have anything you want to mention that's coming up, or you want to uh, bring up maybe your Facebook page for the USFL project? Absolutely. Um, we, uh, we we have a great Facebook group that's very active. We have uh, a lot of participation from a lot of different members. So if you go to Facebook groups and search out the USFL project, there is a page, and you are more than welcome to like that page. Just like the page, we are uh, just like the website. We are working on the page as rapidly as we possibly can. But uh, the group is uh, is it, very active. Uh, a lot of people posting photos, memories, etc. We do have a couple of security questions that we ask you. Um, it's nothing too difficult. We just want to keep the Russian bots out of there from uh, uh, posting random links that are going to get somebody in trouble. So uh, we ask you, um, we ask you what your favorite uh, USFL team was. If you don't have a famous uh, favorite USFL team then just say, I didn't have one, I'm too young, I don't remember. You know, j- just just respond to us. Um, we ask if you were a fan or alumni because we love to identify our alumni and make sure that um, they are uh, they're, they're just as welcome as our fans, but we want to know that they were a part of a team somewhere. And then we ask that you adhere to the group rules, and we've got some very simple group rules that we – we abide by, um, you know, we we don't want any drama. Uh, there's a there's a certain uh, team owner that owns a team in New Jersey that seems to get a lot of people fired up, and so uh, we try to keep everything USFL related and um, not politically motivated or related. We try to keep everything to the USFL because that's what we are. We we are the historians of the USFL. We are uh, preserving the history of the USFL, and we want this legacy, this history, to live long past when when we're you know when we're gone. We we want kids and grandkids and great grandkids and great great grandkids to know the history of the USFL, and we we want them to be a part of it. We if if somebody, you know, if a grandkid had their grandfather play in the USFL, we want to preserve that so that they can always go back and say, hey, that was my granddad. He played against Herschel Walker. He played against Steve Younger. He played against whoever. He played pro football because for some of these guys, for some of these people, um, not just the players, but the administration, the cheerleaders, the equipment managers, this was their only shot at pro football, and we want to make sure that that's immortalized the way it should be. So that's, that is what we're about. So please come over, look at Facebook groups, search the USFL project, answer a couple of simple questions, and take a trip back to the early to mid-'80s. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, I am really – 
proud of, of the way that uh, the, the group handles that. When you say you pay homage to the alumni, I mean, just the respect that they're given. You don't have – I have not seen once where people have, you know, gone all gaga over them and everything. It's been very respectful commentary. Uh, they're, they're treated with respect and, uh, you know, honored the way they should be. And I love when people are posting the, the old ticket stubs and the pictures on their on a daily basis. I think that's just tremendous uh, memorabilia and uh, and sites that uh, we, one would see back in the, the mid-1980s in the USFL. And what a great way to preserve the history. And you guys are doing a great job, and it's much appreciated what you do. Thank you. And, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned the ticket stubs specifically because um, one of our moderators and, and one of the great friends of the USFL project, Channing Smith, uh, I think he and I might be the only two people on the face of the planet that have a ticket stub uh, from the 1984 season. The USFL did something that the NFL will never do. After the championship game, they had a postseason exhibition game between the Philadelphia Stars and the Tampa Bay Bandits in London, England at Wembley Stadium. And I think Channing Smith and I might be the only two humans on the planet that actually have a ticket stub from that game. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's a that's very reminiscent of like the the early NFL. How after the season they would play some exhibition games uh, to try to get you know game garner popularity for the league and uh, get their players another paycheck too. So that's very cool. Get one from London, England. Wow, very nice. Well, Kyle, I want to really appreciate you coming on and helping us here with these jersey numbers. Uh, your insight and you know, your research you did on them is excellent and spot on, and we appreciate what you're doing for the USFL uh, preservation of history. And uh, keep up the great work, my friend. We'll talk to you real soon. Thank you so much for having me. And if I can, if I can ever come on again to add any kind of uh, content, humor, or anything else. Absolutely, let me know. I, I'm a I'm a fan of your podcast, and I appreciate everything you're doing. So, thank you for having me on. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football 
through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>